My name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. Peter. I feel like I'm about to get the State of the Union address. <laughs> Grateful to be alive and sober, I think, at this meeting. I'm not sure. Um, thanks for having me, and um, thank you all for being here. Uh, God separated me from alcohol June 23rd, 1988. I'm a recovered alcoholic, and uh, I say recovered because I am. Anything less than that would be falsely humble. And uh, what I uh, come here to share with you is what God has given me, uh, not what I intend on giving you. And um, as long as I'm growing and understanding effectiveness and living in, in godliness rather than worldliness, uh, there's a good chance that might happen. And I've said this from a million podiums. I hope I never show up for any of these talks. Uh, but let this talk be a reflection of the work I've been doing as of an hour ago, a week ago, a month ago, etc. I uh, came into Alcoholics Anonymous after seven treatment centers in June of 1988, and I was certainly not the uh, poster child for recovery, nor do I claim to be one now. Uh, but what's before you tonight is a lot different than what showed up in 1988, where um, even though I was praying to God, um, I was really out of desperation, no love for God, and not much trust for God. It was just, it was the only thing left, and that's what my teachers were telling me, that's what the elders were telling me to do, so I did as they did, and I didn't ask questions. One of the things I've been blessed with uh, over the last 25 years or so has been uh, God disciplining me to the spiritual life. Whether it meant calling my sponsor on time and keeping my appointments before anything, and getting on my knees in the morning and praying to three times a day as I do now, and showing up for meetings and keeping commitments and doing all the things I need to do uh, and not asking questions. I questioned it inside. Why are they asking me to do all of these things? But I never gave a yeah but to any of my teachers. And quite frankly, nothing came before recovery. And what as that looks like now is a very disciplined life. Um, it doesn't mean I don't kind of kick back and have some fun. I have a blast with my life, but it's a very disciplined life. And uh, in another book, it talks about how many will walk the wide road and pass through a wide gate and will not experience this power. And those of us who are called uh, will be walking a very narrow road and passing through a narrow gate. And that's just the way it is. I was watching a, a film the other day, a movie on TV, um, and there's this uh, young fellow who's lost his direction, he's a wannabe lawyer, and he's speaking to his mentor, who is a very, very successful judge and has a whole career of law, and he's expressing to this uh, young fellow what it's like doing what he's doing. He has great passion for the law and just gobbled it up in college. And he says when he was growing up, um, he was to be a rabbi and thought he wanted to be a rabbi, and his family was thrilled that he was going to be a rabbi. And there was all this excitement on this, uh, what I would call a protege, and he's sharing with that, and he says, by the time I was 14, I didn't want to be a rabbi because I didn't believe in God. He says, but something happened to me with the law, and he said, I just dove into the law, and I'm very successful. And this young fellow asked him, he says, if you had to do it over again, would you make the same choice? And the reply was profound. He says, what choice? And the thing about this path, if you're called, you're called. I don't mean just staying sober. I'm talking about walking a straight, a strict, uh, working with a set of strict spiritual disciplines, walking a narrow road, doing some of the things that some of us do, the many, any lengths we go through. And walking through dark night of the soul and kind of feeling like we're losing our way in prayer, losing our way in meditation, losing our way in recovery because we can't see what's up ahead. And we completely relinquish all control. And our prayer is not to get me all charged up and get my batteries charged up to get back into life so I can navigate through life. It's about getting right with God and let God move me through and relinquish the, you know, the shackles around my wrist where life tells me what to do. Many of us walk through life based on what life tells us to do, what people tell us to do. If I drive this car, if I drink this drink, if I live in this house, I'm a made guy. Everything's great. If I have this kind of body, if I have that much hair, if I wear this kind of suit, I mean, it goes on and on and on. That's just bondage. And the thing about prayer is getting me right in here to let go of all of that, to have no attachments to any of that. And I'm really retreating from all of that back to God, which allows me to go out and live the life God has given me. And when we're called, we're called. <clears throat> when we get callings in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
In 1988, I wasn't looking for God and I wasn't looking for the truth. God and the truth found me. The truth will always find us. It'll find you on, on, in Alcoholics Anonymous when you're sober 10, 15, 20, 30 years. The truth will find you. And when it does, it's not always pleasant. <clears throat> but there's a tremendous amount of freedom if I lock into it. And I usually do that when there's nowhere else to lock into where everything gets removed. And that is part of coming to terms at a gut level through desperation of my first step. Where there's nothing else to lock into but this God, and I don't care where I go, I don't take where it takes me, I'm going. And even though it's very uncertain at the beginning, early recovery is very difficult. I don't care who our sponsor is, it's difficult, it's a challenge, because I'm battling the old voices. I'm battling the old belief systems. And all of those things want to take me back to a drink or a drug, or bounce in and out of relationships, or thinking money is my God, or she's my God, or the cause my God. Many of us don't want to let go of that. We want God, but we want our stuff too. And what I've come to terms with in the, in the insanity of that, if I, I kind of let go in step one, where I'm done with everything. I do not want to run the show. And it comes in a place of complete desperation that we get there when we really bottom out at a gut level, an emotional level. Because we can take beatings. I took beatings. I took getting locked up. I took bouncing out of relationships and she chased me away and he chased me. Even the family telling me not to come home. I bounce back from all that stuff. But when it gets us here, that's why a book says, when we concede to our innermost self, that's a spiritual event. It's way down in here where I'm done. And we know when we're done. All we have to do is look in the mirror and ask yourself, am I done? The guy looking back is going to tell you, no, you're not. Or yes, you are. And we look at, you know, some of the behavior. I looked at some of the behavior I was doing, even in early recovery, even in sobriety, doing the same thing over, expecting different results. My mind says, well, I'm not drinking. And what I've come to terms with is this image that we try to portray. Many of us on the way in, even if we're coming out of a dumpster, want to show we look good. Or we have to show with the worst dauphine, worst drunk ever to hit Alcoholics Anonymous. There's an image attached to that. And really the sense of who we are does not come from any of that. It doesn't come from mind or thought. It comes from spirit, which means I got to experience God. And some of the, my demons in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, in sobriety have been the image. But it wasn't the image as to what you think of me. I need to look good in front of you. I need to have a pocket full of money to get your acceptance or a nice car. That was long gone. And I've been brought to a place where I'm not really caring about what people think of me. I think that's why I get free when I do this stuff. I'm not doing a talk to get approval. It's just the way God moves me. There's another piece of image. Is that I need to, do I get dressed? Do we get dressed because we like getting dressed? Or are we getting dressed to shut down the voice in the head that says, look at you, you're still a loser, you're not dressed. Am I, am I cleaning my car? Am I saving money? Am I buying that house? Because that's what I like to do. I want to take care of my family. I want to earn money so we can have a life together. Or am I doing it because the voice in the head says, you didn't buy a house yet, you didn't make this much money yet, look at you, you're a loser. So I'm trying to shut down this voice in the head that presents to me an image that you don't know about. And I keep chasing, I keep chasing, I keep trying to get over that obstacle, but the voice never goes away until we bottom out and we say, I'm done with this. And it's another surrender to God. Because if I'm listening to, if I'm worried about your voice telling me I'm okay, or the voice in my head telling me okay, either way, I'm shackled to self and it's death before the physical death. And many of us live in Alcoholics Anonymous for years like this, whether attached to what you think of me, pride and ego, or what my mind tells me about me. That's just not a free way to live. How free do we want to be? If we're feeling freedom tonight, do we want to get freer? Am I completely free from the demons in the head, the voices in the head, and the attachments to what people think of me? Imagine going through life worried about what everyone in this room says about me. I go home now. I know some of you wish I did, but I'm not. <laughs> I go home now. And when we hit the pillow at night, that rustling, tossing, and turning, and the voices in the head, no one's around. No one is around. In fact, if I'm, if I'm with, with the partner and they're sleeping, they're not even talking to me, so I'm, I can't even hear them. 
But who's talking to me? The voice in the head or voices in the head. We have a lot of them. Mine have been brutal, absolutely brutal, without mercy. How long was I going to keep listening to this guy? And yet I and us would keep listening and doing the same thing over, expecting different results, buying bigger things, uh, more expensive things, trying to show up, trying to do all this stuff, not for you, but for what this voice in the head says. That's complete powerless over that as well. And I need to hit my knees and throw myself at the mercy of God and say, remove this from me. I'm not a good agent for you. And here comes the calling. Am I really believing? Do I have a calling to this power to serve others? Because if I am, I can't have anything stay in the way. Nothing. Where I live, who I date, who I'm married to, what I drive, what kind of money I have, none of it's any of my business. That's a narrow gate, a narrow road. Many of us are going to balk. The end result of that is a complete lie, a life of complete freedom. Freedom from self. Our book in the third step says, uh, relieve me of the bondage of self. This is what they're talking about. Sure, the obvious things when we come in here, we're wrapped up into all sorts of delusional thinking, illusional thoughts. We're wrapped up. We got, we're handcuffed when we come in here. But when we're sober a little while, who am I in bondage to? No one but me and my belief system, my thoughts and ideas about everything. How this room should be set up. As soon as I walked in here, I thought, well, the podium's crooked. i got to tell James. It should be just a little bit this way. And that whole row is facing there. I was, you know. But it's none of my business. I'm here to speak, not to set up the room. But that's how quick stuff, stuff, stuff. I can't believe he set it up this way. He doesn't even know who I am. I can't believe it. <laughs> Then the voice tells me, look at you. You're speaking at this place, the rows are crooked. Oh, my God. <laughs> Get it? That's the same voice that says, you know what? You're a drunk. Why don't you just go have a drink? And who are you kidding? Mr. Stepworker, Mr. Big Book, Mr. Praying, who are you kidding? You're a drunk. Let's just get it going. And we buy into that. And there's nothing I can do on my best day to prevent that. My best intention is the most powerful desire to stay away from a voice like that. I have no power over it. When it shows up, it shows up. The, the big book talks about uh, a Jim the automobile salesman sitting in, a, in, in a, a restaurant. And he says, suddenly shows up. Suddenly the thought crossed my mind if he was to put whiskey with milk. When suddenly shows up, that's it. We're handcuffed. So I could be sitting in a, in a meeting listening to, you know, anyone, and I'm feeling free, and then suddenly the voice says, what are you doing here, man? This is like Losersville. What are you doing here? You should be out doing something. And we buy right into it, and we check out of the meeting. I don't want to be a slave to my mind anymore. I will experience less damage from my most hated enemy compared to what my mind has for me. And what gets in the way is pride, what you think of me, idolatry, what I'm going to worship, my money, my relationship, my car, my house, all the external stuff. My image, what I think of me, what, what you think of me, and it goes on and on and on. How can I experience God if other things are God? How can I experience God if I am God? Now, I'll never tell you I believe I'm God, but subtly I am. Just ask me quietly, I'll tell you. I'll tell you where I'm speaking. I'll tell you what I make for a living, what I do for a living, what I drive, where I live. I'll give you the whole resume. Just say hello to me. The complete opposite of that is having no partner, just answering the call. A life of invitation, which my Heavenly Father has given me a life of invitation. And I speak for myself, and I, I'm not taking inventory on anyone, because some folks do this. Sometimes, and I notice in South Florida, they do a lot of anyone speaking anywhere they want us to support, and 40 hands go up. I never do that. I do this a lot. I'm not looking for attention. I'm not looking, if people come, I'm pleased. But I don't need to raise my hand because I got support from God because he gave me an invitation to go speak. If there's one dirty smelling drunk in a cathedral and that's it, I'm giving a talk. 
If there's 3,000 people, like at some of the conferences, I'm giving a talk. I was asked to go speak. I don't get involved with any of that. Because all I have to do with my mind, and it is a disease of this mind, is pay attention to that for just a little second and worry about what's there, who's there, what it's going to look like. That is a snowball going down the hill. And by the end of it, I'm killed. It turns into an avalanche. I admitted I was powerless over alcohol. Life might become unmanageable. I'm an alcoholic. Drunk or sober cannot manage my own life. Drunk or sober, my seeking God. God could and would if he was sought. I can't manage my own life drunk or sober, regardless of how long I'm sober as well. That's a statement for all of us. Am I trying to manage my life? You know, the drugs, the alcohol, God, you take care of that. But leave the sex and the money. I got that. Don't worry about it. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. You know, I've been divorced, married and divorced 75 times, but God, I got it. Don't worry about it. There's a couple of things in, in, in when we come out of step one where we're... we're Hopefully we're at a gut level where we're clear that anything I do is going to blow up. And step one's going to tell a guy like me that I'm drinking, regardless of what you put in front of me, that appears good. I'll get drunk on the greatest day. I'll get drunk on the worst day. I'll get drunk on any day. I'm getting drunk. That's what step one tells me. And we have 43 pages that drill this home because they knew someone like me was coming into AA. And you couldn't just tell me one time. You had to give me 43 pages and say, Pete, you're powerless. Paint into a corner, you're screwed. You're drinking until you die. No matter what you think you're going to do, you're drinking. And when I'm completely at at a loss and my hands are handcuffed and there's no way to turn, I turn to God and they present step two, which is introduced to me on page 45 in, in chapter two, agnostics, which is how I came into AA, an agnostic. I knew there was a God out there somewhere. You just can't prove its existence to me. I can't touch it. I can't see it. So right now, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. But I'm going to pray. And many of us are like that. We believe there's something out there. But during our day, our eight-hour workday, our 15 hours roaming around before we hit the the, the pillow at night, we're doing what we're doing. And then we hit on his God, please forgive me when I do it. Keep me clean. So we start all over again. It really isn't so much, although vitally important, of what I do when I'm on my knees. It's when I get up off my knees and I get out and interact with you. If I really have a God. I'm in church every Sunday morning. It's a great thing. One of the greatest things that's happened to me in my life. But when I leave Mass at around 11.30 in the morning, and it's a quarter to 12, and the parking lot's packed and no one's getting out, and I'm on Federal Highway, and all the northerners are down here, and they're crowding up the streets. And I want to go to Publix to go shopping, and everybody on the planet is in Publix, and I just want to get in and get out to go home and watch football. How am I doing? How am I doing? That's when it really counts. That's why I go into prayer, not to navigate through life, but to release all of that and experience God to go through it. But the mind is never done. And in, in chapter two, Gnostics, the most powerful words for me is lack of power was our dilemma. Lack of power is my dilemma. I don't have power, which means I don't have choice to control over anything. I might think I can influence you. I might think I can control you, but I don't. I'm playing God when I do that. And I certainly can't control what I'm going to do. Everything goes through the Father. And if I'm aligned with God's will, suddenly I'm able to wear the world like a loose garment. But that requires dedication and commitment from me because after a while the heat that's on our backside when we come in here I got to get away from this terrible life I'm leaving that kind of cools down and we get comfortable and then we find him or her which becomes God and meetings become second and third and he or she becomes first it's all the mind doing what the mind does. There's a couple of spots in the book that, that play with that t- talk about the mind for us. First of all, it says the main problem for people like us centers in the mind, not the body. That's a step two consideration. Am I convinced that my main problem is in the mind, not the body? The body reacts to anything my mind tells it. My mind says, go pick up a drink. I pick up a drink and I can't stop drinking. And then I blame you for getting me drunk. It talks about willpower becomes practically non-existent. So I say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to stay sober. I'm going to stay sober tomorrow. I'll stop Monday. You know, I'm going to get really drunk tonight and then start nice and clean tomorrow. 
one more time. Willpower becomes practically non-existent. In fact, it says the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. All from the mind. It tells me I'm without defense against the first drink. The almost certain consequences that follow even taking a glass of beer. Don't crowd into my mind to deter me. If these thoughts occur, it says they're readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea, foolish idea that somehow I can drink safely. This is what we battle after we're separated from the booze. And what I learned, which ruffles some feathers, being physically separated from alcohol or the substance has little to do with being recovered. It just means we're separated. I've been locked up a bunch of times. Wait a couple of days to see a judge. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't sponsorship material. Right? I would be in treatment. I was in treatment once for nine weeks. I got drunk two days later. Nine weeks in treatment. My body was clean and sober. My mind was still dirty. My mind had delusions of grandeur, and I'm a low life, both battling both demons on both sides. And the only way I, I can shut any of that down is just give me a double. Give me a Jack Daniels, I'm good. Let it go down, voices start to shut down. Suddenly, I'm a good guy again. And all the dirt get washed, gets washed away. One of the words I used, even in therapy, when I would talk to a sponsor or talk to my therapist, or even when I was in treatment from way back when, was I always felt dirty on the inside. I'm a mistake. Who am I kidding? But dirty is the best adjective I can describe. And when I drank alcohol, I didn't feel dirty anymore. I felt good about me. That's why I drank. I liked the effect produced by alcohol. But the problem is once I start drinking, I can't stop drinking. In fact, I don't even know when I'm going to start, when I'm going to stop. It determines that. My mind's in charge of that. And all because I have a separation or a feeling of separation from this power. And what needs to be done is this purging, this complete emptying out, a metanoia, a complete upheaval. Everything goes out. And what it's replaced with is a godlike mind that we get in Alcoholics Anonymous. We're moved by spirit, no more driven by the mind. That's freedom. That requires action. I need to do some things here. It tells me in the big book, when this sort of thinking is fully established, this sort of thinking is fully established, I place myself beyond human aid. So the love of my own children, the love of my spouse, uh, my job, my boss, even the law giving me warnings, fry the emotional appeal, self-suffice, is not going to work. I'm drinking. That's been my experience as a real alcoholic, the drunk on page 21. So I'm very grateful God has brought me to a place of seeking God and doing all the things I get to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. Step two says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It talks about a grave emotional mental disorder in the chapter five how it works restore me to sanity and that I have a grave emotional mental disorder that sounds like psych patients grave emotional mental disorder sanity, insanity what's this, this, I'm a drunk what does this have to do with me everything to do with me my grave emotional mental disorder is that my mind wants to take me back to that which is killing me over and over and over again. And after a while, for folks who've been around here, it's not the drink on the front. The drink is in the back. It's coming in through the side door. What it is, is paying attention to the voices in the head again. They're going to take me down dark alleys and places I shouldn't be, making inappropriate behavior very appropriate because I need something to feel okay in here. I just need something or someone. I need something out there rather than God because I'm twisted up again. And it's very subtle drift. I love the analogy. I've used this many times when you go in the water and, you, you know, you kind of leave your beach chair here and you go in the water and you play around in the ocean. You make a U-turn to come back to your beach chair and you can't find it. You find out it's way over there. You've drifted. The little currents in the water pull you and pull you and pull you and you didn't even feel it. Oh my God, I'm way over there. It happens in here in Alcoholics Anonymous. Just kind of drift. You don't need to write inventory. You saw me drifting last week in the water when we were down there. You keep drifting. I don't need to call a sponsor. I don't want to go to that meeting. 
I don't have to write inventory. I got to work. I'm very busy. I, I, I can't meet my spot. I can't read the Bible. I'm very busy. I've got a very busy life now. I'm sober. Yeah. I have priorities. And then when we, one day we turn around, we're not drunk yet, but we're lost. And I don't know which feeling is worse, being an alcoholic synonymous, sober, and lost, or just drunk. Both the bondage. And what, what, what blows my mind is we're in a meeting of alcoholics Anonymous. We have 12 steps, 12 traditions. We have a big book. We have lots of information here for everyone in here to get free, completely free, freer than we are right now. And if we're in bondage, freedom from bondage, and yet we do other things. We write our own prescription plan. I did it and kept getting drunk. And when some of my teachers, when I came in in 1988, gave me information, I didn't like all of it. I just didn't question it. Kind of like when I'm sick now and I take an antibiotic, I don't like the side effects of antibiotic. It don't even taste good going down. But I know it's a necessary ingredient. And I'll ask the doctor, is there anything else I can do? No, take the medicine. I take it in a week, I feel better. I have so much information in front of me in the sacred rooms called Alcoholics Anonymous. So step two, when I come out of step one, it's a pointer to the solution. Not the solution, it's a pointer. We're going to go to this place of sanity, wholeness of mind, truth, God. Because that's the only thing that's going to relieve me of this, this thing that's going to kill me, alcoholism. Including the ism that accompanies alcoholism. All the behaviors, because this thing will go underground and resurface in other areas. I think it was last week I said, my first six months in AA, I looked like a drunken sailor without a drink in me. I was fearful, insecure, egotistical, selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, acting out every which way possible. I developed an eating disorder. I thought I had other problems other than alcohol. I thought I was a psych patient. I was completely lost going to meetings. And I remember thinking, I don't want to go to meetings anymore. They don't work. I'm more twisted up now than when I got sober. What do I do? And I completely bottomed out. December 22nd, 1988. A drink was calling. I was getting thirsty. And thank the good Lord, a gentleman, I went to his house and he says, where are you with God in the 12 steps? I said, when did you start the steps? He said, when you stopped throwing up, you're late. He didn't care about my feelings. He wasn't about scaring a newcomer out because he knew booze was going to kick me in if I was lucky. So I got to look at step two, which is appointed to the solution. And now I'm desperate. I need something to shut me down. I'm sick of blowing up. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired sober. It's an arrival place. Came to believe that a power ground myself could restore me to sanity. It's an arrival. I will get to a place. It's a guarantee in our book because step 10 says, you know, the problem, the, the problem's been removed. Sanity has returned. Step 10 gives us the, 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 the solution, right? And I'll have the contract gets delivered. Step 2 says, came to believe that a power greater myself could restore me to sanity. It's an arrival. If I need to be restored to sanity, where am I insane? And the obvious thing is I keep going back to a drink over and over and over again. It'll be different this time. I'll control and regulate. I'll control and enjoy. I try all the experimentation and it never works. And then I just keep dr drinking. My mind loves to have me feel hopeless where, who am I kidding? Just drink and get it over with. Just let's do this. You're never going to get sober. Who wants sobriety anyway? Got to go to church basements for the rest of my life. Let's just go down to the bar and get loaded. My mind would present that, that living in the back of an abandoned building hallway, Drinking Mr. Boston Blackberry Brand, it took me about two hours to, to, to panhandle for that money. Go to the liquor store, get a jug, hold it close to me because it's more important than my own heart beating because if it falls, I'm screwed if it breaks. And tuck myself in the back of a hallway. I haven't bathed, I haven't eaten God knows how long, and just drink my liquor. My mind would say, that is good. Coming here is extreme. <laughs> Doing the steps, drinking in the back of a hallway. Let me get back to your 90 days. I'll work on my 90 and 90. So I get to a place of sanity, a wholeness of mind. But that's it's just the point of what am I going to do about that? How am I going to get there? 
Am I willing to let go of everything? And now big book in chapter 2 agnostics, it tells me God's everything or else he is nothing. Everything means everything. And I really need to get clear on everything meaning everything because I'm about to let go in step three. A great assignment to take a look at that I've done over and over and over again is I write on a sheet of paper things I'm not willing to give to God yet. And why? What am I not willing to give to God? And why? What's my fear? If I gave my money life to God, if I gave my relationship life to God, if I gave my food life, my diet life, my alcohol life to God, what am I afraid of? And I would list where I'm afraid of. Well, if I gave my money life to God, I might be really kind of poor the rest of my life. If I gave my relationship life to God, I might be celibate for the rest of my life. Maybe that's the calling. Well, we don't want to do any of this stuff, so I'll take over and I'm going to hit a wall. And I get to look at my current agnosticism over and over and over again. Where do I think God's working in my life? Where do I think God is not working in my life? Little assignments just to see in black and white where I stand, where I currently am. Because you can ask me a question. I'll give you a profound answer. And you say, great, what a beautiful sponsee I got. But secretly, I don't mean any of it because we're the best liars in the world. There's an old saying, when our lips are moving, we're lying. Newcomers don't like that, but that's the way it is, guys. So my sponsor had me do assignments like that. The truth will set us free, but it doesn't taste good all the time. So I worked through chapter 10 agnostics. It talks about how difficulty will arise when we approach a man or woman when we discuss God. Difficulty is going to arise. Uh, Tension being the surface of spiritual truth. And what it does, it challenges me on everything I thought, felt, and believed in about God. What God's supposed to look like. Where God is. What religion God's really in with. And I became a warring theologian. It challenged everything. Chapter 2 Gnostics tells me how, where, and why to find God. I just need to be open and walk that path. But the difficulty that arises with someone like me, even though my mom took me to church as a kid and did a lot of religious things with me, did all the the Catholic things, there was still difficulty within me when it came to God. And when I found out that the difficulty with God that arose with me, where I bristled with antagonism, was not God towards me, it was me towards God, based on my old perceptions and conceptions about this power. You know how many folks I know coming to AA who say, who are maybe Catholics, devout Catholics, Christians coming to AA, and the big book says, your own understanding. God, you understand, oh, I'm out. It's too vague. It should be a Catholic God. It should be this particular person. So I can't do this. And I asked them, how many times did you worship while you were chasing a drink? And if it was between praying to this power that you're, that you're claiming and a drink, who were you going to? That was your God, not God. Or the simple one is, why do I come to AA? This is what they did with me because I had lots of God problems. The difficulty was me towards God. They said, you come to AA. Yes, why? To stay away from a drink. And who's, who are you going to see? A group of drunks? I said, yeah. And are they going to give you good only direction? I said, yeah. So you got a G-O-D, group of junks for good only direction. That was my higher power at the beginning. I felt safe around you guys, especially old timers. You know, guys with 30, 40 years would sit in the back and they call me, hey, kid, come over. Then they would remember your name. It was like, oh, my God, Shangri-La. You know, old-timer Mike knows my name. And I'll get it through like osmosis, you know. There was a meeting uh, in uh, uh, Brooklyn, uh, St. Finbar Church. I can't remember the, the winners group on a Saturday night. And there was a handful of old-timers in the back of the room. They'd always sit in the same corner. And I'd come down, and you know, after, after a few months of this, they would say hello to me. And then uh, 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 old man Frank, who was going blind, he said, he, he called, hey, kid, they call my name, come sit with us. And I was right in the middle of all of these guys. I was not thinking about a drink. They weren't big book guys. They were just good old timers who told me, Marion always talks about this, told me how to get through life. They gave me great lessons on how to stay away from a drink. But they were all grounded with God. And they were always doing 12-step calls. That's how I learned how to do 12-step calls. 
They were my higher power. And in early sobriety, even though I was starting to develop a relationship with God and kind of getting closer and closer, so many times I would have to get to a meeting just to feel you guys around me, felt safe around you guys. I was sober a bunch of years, and I had a job uh, uh, in Texas, and it just blew up. And I was completely lost, rudderless. And it was a Saturday morning, and I was weeping on this, on, this, on this bench outside of a diner, wondering, where am I going with this life? And a bunch of AA guys were very close to me, came and got me, and we said, let's go to a meeting. And I just had to be around drunks. I had to be around drunks with a rotten cup of coffee and a smelly church basement. <laughs> it was Park Avenue for me. So a group of junks for good only direction. That's why I love alcoholics. That's why it's sacred. Because if we're twisted up and I'm twisted up and I raise my hand, I will get good only direction from someone. The neat thing about being on this path is those twisted up days seem to be few and far between. I'm not perfect. I make a ton of mistakes and I have my stuff. But I'm not twisted up every day like I was when I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous, huh? need to be restored to sanity which means I'm insane somewhere and after a while it's not just a drink it's other things I'm doing am I willing to turn everything over to God because that set me up for step three which tells me at this point I'm about to make a decision turn my will my thinking and my actions over to God and my life is totally none of my business anymore that's a big proposition for many of us. That's why the more hope, a big book tells us the more hopeless we feel, the better. The more hopeless I am, the better. It doesn't feel good, but it's a great thing because I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that anything, anytime I drive, we crash. I'm not doing it anymore. Right. On page 52, it talks about the bedevilments. This is while I'm sober. More unmanageability, even though I'm coming to AA meetings and I'm not drinking. I can still experience unmanageability if I'm lacking a relationship with God. And for me to have a relationship with God, I need to experience the the death of self, the removal of me. It says we were having trouble in personal relationships, couldn't control our emotional nature. Pray to misery and depression. Couldn't make a living. I had a feeling of uselessness. I'm full of fear. I'm unhappy. And I can't seem to be of real help to other people. I'm not talking about the occasional day where you get fear, where you just kind of lethargic, and you're kind of not, not on the beam that day. This becomes a way of life, day after day after day, and we learn how to mask it. We're completely twisted up until we walk into an AA meeting at night. Do you ask me how I'm doing? I'm saying, I'm great. Everything's great. Everything, I'm good. But really, secretly, I'm dying. But the ego has reemerged. The selfish and self-seeking ways, I learned how to mask that. I'm involved in gossip and backstabbing, and I justify it. I critique people all the time. This is all part of my untreated alcoholism. I don't like hearing the truth. Nowadays, thank the good Lord, when I'm on the phone with my sponsor on Wednesday nights, he's giving me truth, and sometimes I don't like it, but I appreciate it. When I'm twisted up, I don't want to take the call anymore. I make an excuse not to call. But my life depends upon someone giving me truth. Page 53 tells me, when I became an alcohol crushed by a self-imposed crisis, I couldn't postpone or evade. I had to fearlessly face the proposition that God is, every, God, uh, is everything or else he is nothing. Where am I going to go now? There's no wiggle room here. Is God everything or nothing? Even when things don't appear to be going my way. Alcoholism will go underground and resurface in other areas. I will be sober going to AA meetings, even have a sponsor. Claim to be working the steps, but I have a secret sex life. I'm full of fear. I'm not honest with my money. I have no integrity when it comes to finances. I have no integrity when it comes to business. I go on sprees, food sprees, thinking sprees, sex sprees, money sprees, gym sprees, tanning sprees, thinking sprees, sprees, anything, because I can't be alone with me on the couch and no one around because the mind is twisting me up. So I need to go something to experience some relief. 
That's untreated alcoholism. I've experienced that. My first six months in AA, I was chasing my tail. I was like trying to outrun my own shadow. And after a while, I grew, it was a rude awakening for me that meetings don't treat that. It's a band-aid on an open wound, but meetings alone are not going to treat that. I'll get some relief for now. At some point, I need to go into the bunker with the big book and a notepad and a sponsor and do all the things I'm asked to experience this power. And I come out of there at some point feeling lighter and freer and not attached to what my mind's telling me. Again, the sense of who I be does not come from my mind or thought. It comes from God. And God already has the, the pathway laid out. It's already in front of me. It's just been cluttered with me and all of my belief systems that I acquired whether it was given to me by loving parents or I bought it from others but it's there and it's messy and the ego wants no part of it the ego wants to insist that I'm right and you're wrong the ego wants to defend what it knows and defend what it doesn't anything to keep God away from my life and that is the uncomfortability. When I'm going through the steps, or I'm getting the truth from a sponsor, or I'm doing inventory at night, and I'm getting uncomfortable, all that's happening is the ego is getting grinded into dust and would really not like not to do this stuff. We'd just rather stay away from it. So sometimes we talk about step two, and we think it just applies to drinking, and it does. But what about when we're around here a little while? What sort of current unmanageability am I experiencing in Alcoholics Anonymous? What's that look like? Am I still having a, a, the gift of desperation, even though I'm here five or ten years? Do I like the effect produced by God? I would write down... My old conception of God, what it was like growing up with this power called God. So I can touch where I am with God. And I would write down a lot of things about my old conception of God growing up. Basically what my parents told me, what my grandparents told me. God is a white guy with a white beard, he's got blue eyes, he lives up there somewhere, some cloud. And that might be true. I don't know, can't discount that, I've never been there. And as I started getting old, I had some other ideas about God. And when I was drunk, I had real ideas about God. And it went from this guy who's going to take care of me to this cruel jokester who wants no part of me. And then I write down where I was currently, sober in AA. Where am I currently? What's my current idea of God, my current conception of God? What does that look like? And the last assignment was the best. How I would like to have a relationship with God in the future. What would that be? If I can create a God, if I can create a relationship with God, what would that look like? What would that feel like? And I wrote down this God of all love and forgiveness. This teacher. This omnipotent power, but a loving power. And that was my goal, to experience something like this. And I would hear the elders in AA talk about this loving God. I just wasn't there yet. Little by slowly, I woke up one day and found this powerful, loving, forgiving, gentle, pushing, steering, guiding father who will discipline me in a loving way, have compassion and forgiveness for me. And when I'm in that place, my mind is not telling me to drink anymore. My mind's not telling me to go use powdered goods anymore. My mind's not telling me to go act out anymore. All of that stuff's been removed. And when the carpenter says we're the world like a loose garment, I know what he's talking about. Many of us know what he's talking about because the mind is no longer God. God is God. And I get moved by the Spirit. Our book talks about uh, 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 being rocketed. It talks about this fourth dimension. What are they talking about? I've been, for the longest time, living in three dimensions. I worship my emotions, my compulsions, and my obsessions. Those are my gods. And our book talks about going past all of those three, transcending all of that. The divine life, we transcend the human order. We go to this other place that emotions, compulsions, obsessions are no longer in, don't longer have me in their grip. I'm living along the line of God. And the stuff that goes on down here, sure, we get pushed around by it. It just doesn't own me. And my mind is now taking a back seat. Imagine walking around without thinking for one day. Now, the first question was, well, how could I not think? Yeah, you can do fine without thinking. How's thinking working out for you? 
Here's what I do when I think. I have a winning Powerball ticket in my hand. After I finish jumping up and down for an hour, my mind says, oh, they're all going to come want money from you. Suddenly I have friends I didn't know. I have to move. I have to get the house secured. They'll kidnap my family. Oh, my God, got to move. Don't tell me. And you start. You start. Mind doesn't stop. That's what thinking does for me. So am I clear that this power can restore me to center? Am I willing to go there? Am I willing to go to any lengths to experience this power? And when I am, we step into step three, which means I made a decision. It's just a decision to turn everything over this power for God. Am I willing to take that leap? Am I willing to go there? And so what I did with the third step uh, prayer was I wrote down on a sheet of paper the third step prayer as it appears in the big book. And then I wrote down my interpretation of the third step prayer. What does it say to me? What does it mean to me? I still do that. So this prayer, all the information in the book, all this book has to become, get internalized. I have to be the book. The book has to be me rather than just words on a page. And so that's what I would do. Page 62 in the big book talks about us, talks about me. It says selfishness, self-centeredness. That, I think, is the root of our troubles. Where's roots on a tree underground, you can't see them. It masks itself really well. My selfishness and self-centeredness underground, you can't see them. Oh, I'll front really well, but secretly I got other things going on. That's how many of us operate. We have to be ripped out, Bill says, root and branch, and placed in new soil. The whole thing has to go. It says, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows, and they retaliate. They get back at us. And I do. Why are you doing that to me for? I'm gossiping about you for six months, and then you stop talking to me. And I say, you believe this one? (laughs) Until I do inventory, and I say, oh, my God, I owe you an amends. No wonder why you don't talk to me. But my mind won't let me see that. Because I'm selfish and self-centered to the core. It says sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation. But we invariably find that sometime in the past, I made a decision based on me, which placed me in a position to be hurt. My troubles are of my own making. Unmanageability is always an internal condition, never an external one. It's how I see the world. It's how I hear the world. It's how I speak to you. It's always an internal condition, unmanageability. The way I handled problems 25 years ago is a lot different than the way I handle problems in life now. One was without God, one walks with God. Unmanageability is always an internal condition. And my book tells me I had to be rid of self. I had to quit playing God. I'm in the world to play the role God assigns. What I've done for years, many of us, is I played God. I assign you a role, I assign you a role, I assign God a role, I assign me a role, and I'm in collision with everyone, and my book is saying we got to let this go. You're not God. It says we ought to quit playing God. It didn't work. And it's subtle how we do that. Like when I walked in and I saw the rose crooked, playing God, James, you got to straighten the room out. This should be this way and that should be that way. Who am I? Maybe it's supposed to be this way. Maybe we're not supposed to be in the other room. We're supposed to be in here. Maybe next week we go back. Maybe next week we're in the parking lot. None of my business. (laughs) Quit playing God. And part of that is now like when I sponsor guys and they bottom out. I mean, you try to prevent that and make them aware, but sometimes people just got to bottom out. It's not for me to keep them in a nice warm blanket and prevent the bottom. Do everything you can, but if you're going to go, go. Or I'm going to play God and I have the power to keep you from drinking. I have the power to keep you from going on a spree. You're going, you're going. I'll be here to pick you up when you're done. My grand sponsor said, let them bop till they drop. You're not God. He's the principal. We're his agents. As an agent, we represent the principal. LeBron James has an agent. LeBron James is the principal. That agent goes out and represents LeBron James. 
gets a whole bunch of deals, puts them on a table, and LeBron says yes and no. We are agents for God. Are you telling me now we represent God? Absolutely. That's what we do. We represent God. Our book tells us that, not me. We're agents for God. He's the principal. We're his agents. That's exactly what it says. I have a huge responsibility. I represent God, not only in AA. This is easy. This is like going to church and being religious for an hour. It's when we're out there and life's coming at us. Life is problematic. Life will come at us. Things will happen. How am I doing? Do I show you a good agent for God? I may be the only copy of the big book someone ever reads. He's the father. We're his children. Unconditional love will give me everything I need if I keep close to him and perform his work well. How am I doing with this work? If I don't do God's work, God's not going to punish me. I just can't hear it. I'm not in touch with God. I'm in touch with me and my ego, me and my pride, me and my defects of character. If we kept close to this power, and they don't mean proximity. There's no such thing as proximity when it comes to God. God is the breath that breathes through me, closer than my own breath. But there's a feeling of separation If we perform his work well, he'll provide me, provide us with what we need to get through this life. All the things we need, whatever it is. And I won't if I don't. I won't experience that. God could would if he was thought, am I going to seek this power? And when I'm ready, what we would do is get on our knees. I do with the men I sponsor now. As my sponsor does with me, my sponsor have done with me in the past. We get on our knees and we hold hands and we say the third step prayer together. It's a very sacred moment. I remember the first time I did that, my sponsor, we got on our knees and held hands. I was like, what is this? What did I get into? It was awkward. I was uncomfortable. I didn't like it. But I, I remember I opened my eyes and looked at him and his eyes were closed and he was there. I said, I want what this guy's got. So I'm going to do what he's doing. Closed my eyes, held on to his hands. We did the third step prayer. And when we got up off our knees, he says, now here's the good news. Your life is no longer any of your business. And we began step four because my book says next we lost out of the course of vigorous action. I was to turn everything over to this power. And it's just a decision. Too many times I've heard people work in the first three steps in our contemporary middle of the road meetings. Work the first three steps. Get a good third step. You're not ready to jump. Don't do the four steps. Stay in step three. Keep turning it over. Read the 12 and 12 every day for the next six months. I'm bleeding to death. And you're telling me to stay here. Step three is, yes, I'm ready to go. Step four, go. Because it's somewhere in four through nine that I will access this. I will experience God. And I'm totally out of time. Thanks for listening.